Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, it's Keith from the Book of Constellations, and I want to hear from you. There are lots of ways you can get in touch. You can send an email to bookofconstellations at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at WKeithTims. And I'd love for you to leave stars or a review on sites like Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, or Podchaser. It helps me know how I'm doing and helps other people find the show. And if you'd like to help a little more, consider making a small gift of support at glow.fm slash bookofconstellations. It's just a couple of clicks, but allows me to keep making content. Thank you, and enjoy this week's verse. The Book of Constellations Written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms Chapter 1, Verse 11 Let's see. I guess it was about uh, ten days after the confrontation with Pilot Quaid when they got her. Uh, Maybe closer to two weeks. You'll have to forgive me, but uh, in the middle of all that, I had another bad spell and was in bed for a while. Also, this was the time I started noticing how bad my breathing was getting. Even now, there's some days I just can't seem to get enough air, you know? Always knew there was a chance the cancer would spread to my lungs. I guess that was happening all of this. So, my memory of some of those days were spotty at best. I remember burning through the oxy to manage the pain. And I remember Satya hovering around me, making me drink water or trying to get me to eat. She was amazing, honestly, during our time on Tulip Lane. She never let on how worried she was, even though I could see it in her eyes. Worried for me, worried for Rail. With me in bed and Rail lost in a fog, uh, she had to take care of both of us. You know, it's easy to forget she was only 16, but I guess she had to grow up faster than a lot of kids. They called it terrorism, what happened at that hotel. And we were the terrorists. I'm sure you've heard the story over and over. They told quite a tale about Pilot Quaid, turned him into an action hero, as he struggled with the extremists who pulled a gun on him, held us off long enough for a SWAT team to storm the hotel and send us running. (laughs) All those videos of him with his bandaged hand. His ratings skyrocketed after that, didn't they? I wish just a few people might have said something in our defense, people who saw us, people we helped. But you know what the worst part is? When they put together that Satya was with us, 
the things they started to say about her and us. Like, like how we kidnapped her and brainwashed her or some other nonsense. It was bad enough they kept using her old name. What was it, Sachi called it her, um, uh, her dead name? Calling her a boy and stuff. And then they started speculating, implying all sorts of stuff about what Rail and I might be doing with her. You know, sexual stuff, which... Okay, these are the last things I'm going to say on that matter. First, it was all untrue. I would never do anything like that with her. She was... I don't know. I missed my chance to be a father. But she became like a daughter I never got to have. She and Rael grew close, of course, but I never saw anything like that happen between them. Honestly, I don't know that Rael even considered sex. He seemed to prefer to live in his head, and Satya seemed quite comfortable with that. So the next time you hear some snide remark or some snickering schoolboy innuendo about our travels to save this world, I want you to remember that a lot of it is because they want to devalue and dismiss her, to turn her and us into something trivial and tawdry. She is not a joke or a kink. We wouldn't be here right now without her. All right, so we flee the hotel and I take us a couple hours away sticking to the back roads. But I know that we're not just going to be hunted by the local cops now. After Quaid's injury, the whole nation, even the world, is going to be watching us. We have to disappear for a while. Rail has gone quiet on us. Uh, quieter than usual, I mean. Satya tries to coax him to talk about what happened, but he's withdrawn, barely moving, sitting like a stone in the passenger seat of the RV. So eventually, she gives up and just holds his hand as we drive, which leaves it up to me to figure out a place to hide. Now, we could go out into the woods somewhere, but if anyone did see us, we'd stand out. I reckon we need camouflage. In just about every community, you'll find places like Tulip Lane. They're easy to overlook. You drive past them on your way from one nice part of town to another. They're hidden by scrub trees or behind billboards or derelict gas stations. It's the place where migrants come to live when they have nowhere else. You'll notice them if you drive by in the mornings because often there'll be dozens of men waiting by the side of the road looking for day labor in construction, landscaping, painting, whatever needs to be done. A lot of the women do house cleaning. If you got farms nearby, they'll be in the fields. Sure, a lot of them are here legally, but people still hire them. Some of the fishing boats I worked on back in the day brought in undocumented migrants to do the dirtiest work. And yeah, it's against the law, and it's easy to exploit, I get it. But honestly, who else is willing to stand in a slaughterhouse for eight hours a day, gutting chickens for basement wages? Don't see a whole lot of locals eager to walk in the bacon sun for hours on end, bending over to pick strawberries. But everyone wants cheap food. Everyone wants a pretty lawn for the best price. So, places like Tulip Lane exist. There are jobs that need doing, and people will come and do them awful as they are, because it's not as awful as where they came from. Santiago, who shares the trailer closest to the main road on Tulip Lane, left the violence in Colombia with his wife and son to save their lives. 
They traveled across Central America for over a month, sometimes on foot, to get here, to do dirty jobs for cheap. Now that kind of grit has to count for something, you know? Tulip Lane is an old asphalt drive that connects to what was once the main road through town. They put in a highway a few decades back and the town shifted amoeba-like toward it, leaving the old neighborhoods to languish. Tulip Lane forms a U-shape through a field that's long since had its grass trampled to sandy dirt. There are a few scrawny pine trees here and there, but the rest have been replaced by power poles. All along it are trailer homes, set perpendicular to the road on tiny lots, cramming as many as they can into the space available. They've seen better days, that's for sure. There's also a few RVs like mine, and even back in the thin strip of woods that borders the abandoned dollar store, some people have set up tents. Yes, there's trash around because the sanitation companies don't come here. Yes, there's problems with the power and the water because... There's too many houses and not enough hookups. But despite that, you can see that a lot of the people living here try. They try to keep their homes clean, try to brighten up the place with plants or flowers in the dry, packed dirt where nothing grows. They do the best they can with what they have where they are. I squeezed the RV into a space at the back, near the woods with the other campers and tents. No one said anything, no one questioned us. They kept to themselves and we to ourselves, at least for the first couple of days. Satya had coaxed Rail out of the passenger seat and into the kitchen area, but otherwise he might as well have been a fixture of the RV. Now, I've lived in Depression's neighborhood. I know what it looks like. And Rail had moved in. We both tried to talk to him, but it's like his mind was somewhere else entirely. Satya took it upon herself just to sit with him for long stretches. She kept a cup of water in front of him and spent a lot of time sketching in her notebook. The first time he said something was one evening, after one of the residents of Tulip Lane had helped me run a hose to the RV. They'd tapped into an old city water tower on a hill nearby. I tell the guy thanks, then go inside to test out the faucets. Without lifting his head, Rail says, We should not be here. We are endangering these people. Saji is so startled she drops her pens on the floor. I say, we're more at risk on the road or alone right now. We have to wait till things calm down. He falls silent again for a few long seconds and then he says, She was right. Dr. Astrom was right. I am dangerous. The people at the hotel could have been hurt. Satya places her hand on his arm. But they weren't. Pilot Quaid was shot. Yeah, but that was an accident. They were shooting at you. No, he says. Mara wants me unharmed. They shot Quaid because he might have shot me. Satya snored softly. (laughs) He had it coming. Rail lifts his head sharply. No. No one deserves violence. No one deserves pain and suffering, even those taken by the darkness. Would you want your brother shot for how he treats you? Satya shrinks back, her face fallen. No. I confronted the darkness in Quaid and failed. I put his life in danger. I put your lives in danger. Quaid's reach is longer than ever, and the darkness remains in him, entrenched and hardened. I say to him, You reminded me that we are here to fight the darkness. If we're fighting, 
people are going to get hurt. People might die. That's just the way things go. Rail says, Simon, you are our defender and caretaker. I know you to be a man of compassion, and so it must simply be that you don't see how callous that idea is. He unfolds his arms for the first time since he'd sat down, hands resting on the tabletop. My people were much like you. They spent their lives chasing a spark of greatness, hoping to hold for a moment a piece of something beyond just existence. They failed, often, but sometimes, together, and with great struggle, they accomplished miracles. They would build with shapes that nature could not create. They rescinded the laws of physics and chemistry and transformed matter itself. They opened their souls and made art and music that gave the cosmos a voice. When the darkness came, my people stopped chasing that spark and turned with loathing on themselves. Everyone I ever knew, everyone I ever heard about, everyone I glimpsed in passing or heard about in a news report, died while I watched. Sickness, poison, war, riots. Even when there were meager handfuls of us left, they still found reasons to hate each other. The dead lay everywhere, in empty cities and corrupted fields, and I watched it happen. My mother, who knew the darkness had won, taught me everything she could about my people. Not merely our history, but our ideas and inventions, our poetry and song, the dreams and fears and flaws. He touches his temple with a fingertip. I carry it with me now, all of it. My mother was the last voice I heard. Then I was alone and walked the dead worlds of my people in the hope that perhaps one day I would find someone anyone to share this burden with me. But until I came here, all I found was the empty universe. And the universe is not compassionate. And the universe is not malicious. Only people can be those things. When I remember those I saw die, neighbors next door and strangers on the news, I do not weep because they died. I weep because they can no longer change the world. The universe can go along as it is without us. But to transcend, it requires people. Every life, even one that is bitter and broken, contains the engine to turn mere physics into meaning. Do not shrug your shoulders at death, Simon. Life is not just a rare thing. It is the greatest thing. And then he rises, goes outside, climbs up on the roof of the RV, and looks up at the stars. He would make a habit of that nearly every night while we stayed at Tula Plain. Must have been a couple of evenings later when those yahoos drove up. It was getting on toward dark. The sky was turning purple. Rail was already on top of the RV, waiting for the stars to come out. Satya had gotten tired of sitting around all day, and despite my warnings, had started saying hi to the neighbors. I was going through our cupboards, wondering about how long it would be before we'd have to risk a trip to the grocery store. That's when I heard the loud engine and the drunken yelps from the entrance to the neighborhood. It was a couple of locals. You've probably seen similar people around where you live. 
driving a big pickup truck, got flags mounted on the back, one American, one Confederate, window decal that says something about prying guns from cold, dead hands. Never understood the whole Confederate flag thing, honestly. It was a war, not a football game. It's not a sport where you cheer for your team even though they lost. Anyway, these boys have been drinking, and now we're looking to feel good about themselves by threatening people who couldn't fight back. And considering the type, I figured there was a good chance they had guns in the truck. So they're up at the front of the lane. Like I mentioned, Santiago and his family live in the trailer by the road, so they're getting most of the noise. The boys are revving the engine, yelling slurs, throwing beer cans. Santiago's got the good sense to try to go inside, but the boys aren't having it. They're shouting, Where do you think you're going? I'm talking to you, and other nonsense. Now, on the one hand, we don't really need people seeing our faces, but on the other, I knew Satya was out and about and that things might get out of control. So I'm limping over to get the shotgun when I hear Rael's footsteps on the roof, then a thump outside as he jumps down. He's walking in a straight line to the front of the lane with that unstoppable gait that he had when he first confronted Pilot Quaid at the rally. Now I remember that Rael asked me to never take out the shotgun again, but things feel dangerous. One of those idiots pulls a gun, I want to be ready. But on the other hand, if I walk up to the truck carrying my weapon... Seems like it'll make them want to pull out their own. And if you're holding a tool in your hand, you'll feel like using it. So despite my instincts, I leave it and try to catch up. Rail walks right up to the truck. One of the men gets out, swaying a little bit, puffing out his chest like he thinks he's something special. I'm too far away to hear what's said. But at some point, they turn off the truck and talk. By the time I reach Santiago's trailer, things seem much calmer. Santiago was watching nervously by the front door, but the two men talking to Rael, well, you can see something happened to them. Something on their faces. Anger replaced by confusion, replaced by surprise and wonder. And then the one who got out shakes Rael's hand, and they drive off. When Rael wanders over, I ask him, what did you say to them? He says, I told them why, in different circumstances, they might be friends with Santiago here. And then I told the driver about a better job opportunity than the one he had. And I told the other one his favorite musical group will be playing a concert nearby. That's it? He shrugs very faintly. More or less. And they just left after that. Rael, I've lived with good old boys like them all my life. Hell, I was probably closer to being one than I care to admit. A couple of weeks from now, they'll get drunk again and they'll be back. You can't change them. You may be right. Maybe I cannot change anyone. They are who they are. But if they are happier, then perhaps they will have less room for fear and anger within them. I don't think appeasement's gonna work. Some people only understand the language of strength. Everyone knows at least a few words of kindness, Simon. The rest can be taught. The sky was nearly dark by then, and he walked back to the RV. We've attracted a little crowd. Rail climbs up on the roof. The stars come out, and the gray skin of his face and arms begins to glow that soft blue. Pretty soon, everyone in Tulip Lane knows something is up with Rail. The next morning, I struggled to get out of bed and ended up just staying there a while. For several days, I drifted through a sweaty sleep, aided by the narcotics, 
wandering between islands of pain and lucidity. I missed out on a lot of the day-to-day stuff, but Satya filled me in. During that time, she and Rael made friends with just about everyone in the lane. From what she said, it started out with Santiago and his wife, Luciana, coming over to the RV after dusk and talking to Rael as he sat on the roof. They had brought over some food to say thanks for the way he handled those boys, but they were curious too. During their talk, they mentioned family they had left back in Colombia, and Rael told them in his startling, matter-of-fact manner about how things were back there, about Santiago's brother and Luciano's mom. He starts telling them about Colombia, where to find gasoline there or upcoming police action so they can alert their families. Now, there's not many ways of verifying these things, but, you know, Rail just seems to always be right about stuff like this. Anyway, the next night, there were more people. And the next night, even more. Pretty soon, it's a regular thing. The sun goes down. And everyone gathers around the RV to listen to Rail talk and to ask him for help. He tells them what he can about their families or about an immigration lawyer to contact or job openings, things like that. They bring food, so much, in fact, that Satya starts delivering it to the others on the lane, especially the folks in the tents who have got it the worst. And the candles, you know, the, the kind of the little glass jars... The first time I felt well enough to leave the RV, I knocked over about a dozen of them spread around the door. They were lined up along the edge of the roof, too. Uh, That must have been a sight. A clear night. Candles lit. Their little warm lights mirroring the stars in heaven. Rael sitting cross-legged atop the RV, shining like a piece of the night itself. Listening while these hopeful pilgrims from other lands whisper about their worries and their dreams. I didn't get to see it myself. First time I felt like getting up was the day of the wedding, and after that, well, it was too late. Satya made herself busy. Hiding out is boring, and it's not like there's a lot of recreational activity on Tulip Lane. But with all the families living here, getting by with what little they have, there's always stuff that needs doing. So, she would help hang laundry out on clotheslines or pitch in with housework if someone was sick. She was pretty good with kids, too, and she told me about a couple of them she was teaching to draw or how she'd watch the Ramirez's toddler so both parents could get to work sometimes. She was also kind of Rael's, uh, secretary, I guess is the best word. She'd field questions about him, quash rumors, pass along wishes and coordinated the evening gathering so that everyone had a chance to talk. By the end of all of this, she knew everyone in their situation, and was still looking after both of us. Despite his popularity on the lane, Satya confessed that Rael seemed even more distant than usual, and she spent what time she could trying to just engage him, keep him grounded, keep him with us. One late afternoon, after I had recovered enough, I was sitting outside the RV with her, sipping on a glass of tea she'd made for me. She's watching little Martin Ramirez, who is chasing bugs. Rail's inside at the dining table like usual, so it's just us. Satya catches me up on a lot of what was going on, and she says there's a wedding happening that day. Uh, Jamari and Connie had been engaged since before they came here from the Philippines, but immigration had nabbed the family they were going to stay with, and 
they'd ended up on their own. They were putting off getting married, but decided not to wait anymore. Elaine was using it as an excuse to throw a party, and everyone was invited. Satya mentions that they only had a couple of bottles of wine, but they were going to make the most of it. I reminded her that she was too young to drink. She sticks her tongue out at me, and then she says, uh, We should go, and I might need your help to convince Rail to go too. I say, Rail doesn't strike me as a party kind of guy. He's taking what happened at the hotel very hard. He doesn't know how to deal with all the awful things those lost to the darkness will do to defend it. He wants to save everyone. I don't think anyone can. She frowns a little, but then pushes it aside to sit up straight. I don't think you and I can, but he can. He'll find the way. He just can't give up hope. Which is what I've been trying to do to show him there's hope. All these people he's helping, the lives he's touching here on Tulip Lane... They're still in a tough situation, but they're smiling. We wouldn't be having this wedding if it wasn't for him. So we go. And yes, Rail goes too. Mostly thanks to the wheedling and pleading that Satya does. People dance and talk. The bride and groom kiss each other every chance they get. Rail mostly stands at the edge of the crowd. People come up to him, try to hand him food or drink, which he sort of stares at until Satya cheerfully deflects them. I can't tell how he feels about it all, but I guess it's better than brooding. So things are going along, and out of nowhere, this delivery truck pulls up at the entrance to the lane. Driver gets out, looks really puzzled. He checks his phone, looks at us, checks it again. But then he goes to the back of the truck and wheels out a crate of wine, leaves it on the ground nearby, and then drives off. Now... I take a peek in Rail's direction, and I swear that there's just a hint of a smile on his lips. Anyway, the party gets a lot more exuberant after that. It was about half an hour later when I noticed Rail has moved away from the party and is staring off into the distance in the general direction of the water tower. I go ask him if everything is okay. How are your legs, Simon? Sore, but better. Can you walk with me up the hill? I think so. What's up? I am not sure, but I think Dr. Ostrom is watching us. Hell, are they coming? I don't know. I don't think so. It feels like just her. What it feels like is a trap. If it is, I do not want it sprung on these people here. Perhaps she just wants to talk. Walk with me. All right. One second. I flag Satya down. Tell her what's up. Stay at the party. We'll be back. She tells us to be careful, staring fretfully after Rael. We climb the hill, through the twisted shrubs and over the carpet of pine straw, to the rusty water tower that overlooks Tulip Lane and the other old roads around us. From up here, I don't see anything unusual. Rael doesn't seem to either. I saw her for just a moment, in that direction, toward the laundromat. But now the impression is gone. Are you sure it was her? Reasonably. She's not going to let you go, is she? No. I put my hand on his shoulder. People like her, they don't care about collateral damage. They will hurt others just to hurt you. They're counting on you to back down just to end the suffering. And that's how they win. Rail doesn't answer, studying the countryside below 
with its overgrown lots and vacant buildings, the music from the party filtering its way up to us. So I let it go. We watch a while longer, but then Rail says he can't find any sign of Ostrom, so we go back down. When we return, I look around for Satya, but I don't see her. I ask Santiago about it. He tells me that he saw a man talking to her. He came from the tents at the back of the lane, one of the new people, someone Santiago didn't really know. The man looked desperate, he said, like he was asking her for help, and they went off together. We go to the tents. That new family's tent is abandoned, hardly used at all, in fact. There's not a trace of him, or her. We search the woods, the nearby streets, every home on Tulip Lane. Satya's gone. She's gone. The Book of Constellations is written, produced, and performed by W. Keith Timms. Music in this episode included Ebo Song by Rest You Sleeping Giant, Bindweed by Axletree, and Contemplate the Stars by Maydan. You can find more information about these artists on our website, bookofconstellations.com. Additional music by John Bartman. The theme is Cycles by Pictures of the Floating World. I'd take it as a personal favor if you'd ask a friend to listen to our show. Thank you. See you next verse. There's something new I want you to hear. It's called The First Episode Of, and it's a podcast about audio drama and the creative process. In each show, I listen to the first episode of an indie audio drama and then have a discussion with the creators about their methods, their struggles, and successes. It's great conversation for anyone interested in storytelling and creativity. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts or at thefirstepisodeof.com. Give it a listen. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.